I feel there is a curse on rock stars. I honestly feel it could all end tomorrow. Not just the band thing. I mean life. The words of Mark Bolan, the hippie mystical mod from London's East End who applied glitter under his eyes in the 1970s and in the process invented glam rock to become one of rock music's biggest and brightest stars. Until a moonlit night in September, two weeks before his 30th birthday, dimmed his light just as suddenly as it had burst onto the scene. Mark Bolan loved cars. Cars ruled his life. It was a car that took him away to a rock star nirvana. The irony? Mark Bolan couldn't drive. The idea of driving scared him to death. He also famously told his manager he would like to die in a mini. His wish came true. This is the story of the hackney dandy in the rock and roll underworld. Of Mark Bolan, the elf-like man-child who blew everyone away with his laser love. Join us on a supernatural journey through the life and death of Mark Bolan, the lead singer of the glam rock band T-Rex. This is Death by Misadventure. Half Jewish, half Christian, Mark Bolin was born Mark Feld on September 30th, 1947, in Stoke Newington, London. He was named after his uncle, Private Mark Feld, a Jewish soldier serving in Great Britain's armed forces who was beaten to death by a fellow soldier during an unprovoked anti-Semitic attack. Bolin's uncle was just 20 years old and died 13 months before Mark was born. Mark knew of his heritage and it was to have a profound effect on him towards the end of his own life. At the age of nine, Bolin firmly believed he was destined to become a star. One of his many heroes was James Dean. Like Dean, Bolin was convinced he would die young. But first, he had to achieve hero status. He did that by sheer drive and determination, fueled by incessant self-belief that was virtually overwhelming and all-consuming. As Bolin once wrote, I am my fantasy. He was also addicted to the idea of fame from a very early age. As journalist and former publicist Keith Oldham noted, fame was the drug for Mark. His devoted parents sent him on his way. His mother brought him his first guitar for his ninth birthday. He probably formed a skiffle band. At school, he played guitar in Susie and the Hula Hoops a trio that included 12-year-old Helen Shapiro. During lunch breaks, Bolton would play his guitar in the playground for his friends. As a boy, Bolin would loiter at the stage door of the Hackney Empire, touching the hem of the garments of stars such as Cliff Richard and Marty Wilde. Marty would go on to become another of Bolin's musical influences. Expelled from school at 14, Mark didn't care. School wasn't teaching him the things he wanted to know. By then, his dad had already inadvertently given him the new keys to a future life when mistakenly buying him a Bill Haley record. He thought he was purchasing the Ballad of Davy Crockett by Bill Hayes. It wasn't long before Bolin was falling in love with the rock and roll of Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran and Chuck Berry and would hang around coffee bars such as Two Eyes in Soho. Dressed as a mod, Bolin appeared as an extra in an episode of the television show Orlando and briefly joined a modelling agency, appearing in a clothing catalogue for the John Temple menswear store. Mark became obsessed with his appearance and clothes, and he soon became known for his impressive wardrobe of sharp suits and expensive shoes. It wasn't long before the media noticed him. I've got 10 suits, 8 sports jackets, 15 pairs of slacks, about 20 jumpers, 3 leather jackets, 2 suede jackets, 5 or 6 pairs of shoes, and 30 exceptionally good ties, Mark enthused. This fascination with his image stayed with him throughout his short life. Mark Bolin was only five foot four inches, but he was possessed of a charisma and drive that always made him seem larger than life. To his friends, 
He had a conviction about his destiny, which they found truly terrifying. At the age of 17, nobody had the faintest idea who Bolin was, but that didn't stop him telling the London Evening Standard that he was destined to be the world's biggest pop star. Bolin moved in with child actor Alan Warren and changed his name to Toby Tyler. Bolin spent hours sitting cross-legged on Warren's floor, playing his acoustic guitar. Warren saw the potential and became Bolin's manager. This proved to be a vital path into show business. Bolin at this time liked to appear in boho chic and donned a corduroy peaked cap similar to Bob Dylan. Dylan was his current source of inspiration. Mark then changed his name for the last time, combining Bob and Dylan to form Bolin. As journalist Mick Brown puts it, Bolin was a chancer, a hustler, skulking in music business boozers, telling everybody who would listen that he would one day be bigger than Elvis. He pitched himself at manager Simon Napier-Bell, announcing that he was going to be the biggest British rock star ever. Impressed by Bolin's self-belief and dazzled by his outrageous prettiness, Napier Bell persuaded Parlophone to let him record the single Hippie Gumbo. The record flopped, but it found its way to John Peel, who would plug Bolin's record on the radio and invite him in for sessions and poetry readings. Bolin's imagination was filled with new ideas and he began to write fantasy novels as well as poems and songs sometimes finding it hard to separate facts from his own elaborate myth. He famously claimed to have spent time with a wizard in Paris. As Napier-Bell tells it, the story Mark told everyone was that he'd met this wizard in the Bois de Boulogne, who had taken him back to his house where he stayed for three months, studying magic, making potions and so on. Actually, he'd gone on a weekend trip to Paris and met a conjurer in a gay club and spent the night with him. But if he faced him with this, he'd just laugh. Mark had the greatest sense of humour in the world. He'd laugh at himself more than anybody else. Bolin had a seductive charm and an ambivalence that made him attractive to both men and women, even though he had the biggest ego in the world. When he first came to me, Napier Bell recalls, he said, I don't know why we need to make a record. All we need to do is put up posters all over town and I'll be just as big a star. Mark became a band member of Napier Bell's John's Children in 1967 and stayed with them until June and wrote their most memorable track, the single Desdemona. This achieved minor notoriety for being banned by the BBC. The broadcaster objecting to the line, lift up your skirts and fly deeming it to be too provocative when Bolin's only intention was to paint the picture of a witch straddling her broomstick. Despite this, the single almost hit the British top 50, and could well have risen had it not been for the ban that restricted its airplay. Bolin left John's children to reinvent himself, his songwriting taking off into new spheres as he began penning many of the poetic and neo-romantic songs that would appear on his T-Rex albums. Bolin was going around telling people he was the reincarnation of a Celtic bard. Seeking members for his new band, Bolin placed an ad in the weekly music newspaper Melody Maker. Four musicians were chosen. However, following a disastrous debut gig at the popular hippie club The Electric Garden, track records repossessed Mark's instruments. The company still owned them under his John's Children contract and the five-piece band, named Tyrannosaurus Rex, was reduced to a duo. Bongo player Steve Peregrine Took, named after the Lord of the Rings character, and Mark on guitar. They gigged extensively, and slowly but surely started to gain a devoted following amongst the hippies and students. Around this time, John Peel discovered Mark's Hippie Gumbo single, and played it a few times on his radio show. Mark wrote to thank him, and the two struck up a friendship. Peel then ensured that the band was booked to appear at venues where he was appearing as a DJ slash compere. It was another step along the road to success. Mark and Steve gained an even wider audience for their unique style of music, and Mark's dream of stardom was on the road to becoming a reality. Simon Napier-Bell, however, 
felt he could no longer do anything for the band and left. Bolin signed a new management deal with Black Hill Enterprises, where Mark was introduced to his first great love and future wife, June Child. The band's breakthrough came when an American producer named Tony Visconti walked into the Electric Garden, which was now called Middle Earth. Bolin was on stage, in his familiar cross-legged position on the carpet, hunched over his guitar, his face half-obscured in a cloud of curls, while Peregrine Took banged his bongos beside him. Visconti was immediately struck by their originality. I came to London thinking the British countryside was full of rock groups, but I soon realised that the four-piece pop group was used to exhaustion. The sound of Tyrannosaurus Rex and the music was kind of tribal, but it had the elegance of Mark's lyrics. They were stunning. I didn't see a musician, remembers Visconti. I saw a star. I went up to him and he said, Oh, you're the eighth producer I've met this week. John Lennon was in here last night and he wants to produce us. He was totally full of himself. At ten the next morning, Bolin called from the street outside Visconti's office. He made it sound casual, says Visconti. I'm just passing by. We'd like to come up and audition, said Bolin. They unfurled their carpet on our floor and played the whole set. The rest, as they say, is the stuff of legend. With Visconti at the helm and the drug-addled Steve Took replaced in 1969 by Mickey Flynn, whom Bolin met in a health food restaurant, the first couple of albums stayed firmly within the realm of Magic Mushrooms and Pixies. Their first single, Deborah, saw chart action, peaking at number 34 in April, and their first album, My People Were Fair and Had Sky in Their Hair, but now they're content to wear stars on their brows, recorded for next to nothing and released in July, proved to be a success, charting as high as number 15 in the album charts. However, their second album, Prophets, Seers and Sages, The Angels of the Ages, was not so successful, although the second single, One Inch Rock, bettered the chart high of Deborah and breached the top 30 at number 28. Bolin made four albums as Tyrannosaurus Rex, but the acoustic meanderings and whimsical lyrics had limited appeal. None sold more than 25,000 copies. By now, Bolin and June Child were spending a lot of time together and soon fell madly in love with each other. June was a music business fixer. One of her roles was to watch over Pink Floyd's damaged genius, Sid Barrett, who had briefly been her lover. June was four years older than Mark, was smarter and more worldly-wise. Berlin was obsessed with Lord of the Rings, but he was dyslexic and had never actually read it, despite his great passion for that fantasy adventure world. June read the three volumes out loud to Bolin as they lay in bed together. She filled in all the pieces that were missing in his life. June became his lover, chauffeur, minder, mentor, and eventually, his wife. Musically, Bolin, Visconti, June, and the members of Tyrannosaurus Rex charged on. Bolin decided to adopt a more electric sound. It proved to be the catalyst for momentous change. The 1970 disc, Beard of Stars, reached the top 30. Then Bolin changed the band's name to T-Rex, released Rider White Swan, and suddenly they were on top of the pops with a giant hit. Rider White Swan combined the surreal fantasy imagery of his hippie days with a driving, insistent rhythm that could only spell one thing. Commercial success. It was his first real hit, and Bolin's elfin face and full head of flowing locks suddenly hit the front pages, dominated the music magazines, and almost single-handedly created the teeny bop phenomenon. His student following accused him of selling out, but Bolin didn't care. Overnight, he had realised his dream. He was a teen idol. Within a year, Bolin's T-Rex were bigger than the Beatles and outselling Hendrix and The Who. The story goes that it was Chelita Secunda, the wife of Bolin's manager, Tony Secunda, who sprinkled glitter under Mark's eyes and glam rock was born. Or as John Lennon puts it, just effing rock and roll with lipstick. If God were to appear in my room, Bolin told one journalist, Obviously I would be in awe, 
but I don't think I would be humble. I might cry, but I think he would dig me like crazy. After Ride a White Swan came the rush of T-Rexity and a string of chart toppers. The album Electric Warrior 1971 cemented itself at number one for six weeks, followed in 1972 by The Slider, which also took Bolin into the US Top 20. Bolin Mania was alive and well. It was like being jealous of your best girlfriend, recalls Liverpudlian pop singer Cilla Black, who performed with Bolin on The Cilla Show. He had everything. The hair, the eyes, the makeup, the glam. The worrying thing was he did kind of fancy him, being this feminine-looking guy. But then you had the music as well. Both things together, and the combination was unbelievable. Yet, just two years later, in 1974, the phenomenon was already waning. Bolin, awash in brandy and cocaine, alienated his band and friends with irrational fits of egomania. It can't last, Bolin said in 1972, when the hit parade was studded with his name and hits. They'll grow up soon and change, or find some other hero. It's all cycles, but this one's mine. He was right. Along came the Osmonds and David Cassidy. The little girls soon started to scream for them. Despite tours and heavy promotion, Bolin never made the breakthrough into the American market. Their hippie period had never been as popular as Britain's. It happens to most rock stars, Visconti says with a heavy sigh. We'd be in the studio saying, what's going on? Why is he shouting at us? Mark would be womanizing and cheating on his wife, June, and she was the first to leave. I left after her. I couldn't take it any longer. Bolin was shaken. He lost his wife and, possibly worse, was gaining weight and losing his looks prompting the nickname, the Glittering Chipolata. Too beautiful to live, too young to die, Bolin once said at the time. In all, T-Rex are said to have sold 40 million records, but in late 1973, after four number one singles and three number one albums, their fortunes had begun to slide. Placing his fears aside, Later that year, in 1973, Bolin and T-Rex flew to Munich to record their ninth album, Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Writers of Tomorrow. It became T-Rex's first album not to make the top ten. Bolin himself later admitted in an interview that musically the Zinc Alloy period was terrible. He was involved with drugs, high on cocaine, and was drinking excessively. He said he just didn't want to be a rock star anymore. Bolin felt lost and was facing a spiritual battle linked to his traumatic past. Part of Bolin's insecurity was deeply rooted from his childhood as a half-Jewish child growing up in the East End, and he felt emotionally disturbed by the fact that he was named after his murdered uncle. In fact, one night while recording the T-Rex album, Steve Curry, the bass player, found Bolin crying, and he was running up and down the hotel hallway above the basement studio, saying he could feel the pain of all the victims of the Second World War. Bolin was spooked by the fact that a concentration camp was less than 20 miles away from the recording studio. His girlfriend, Gloria Jones, witnessed the breakdown she told friends that Bolin came back into the control room and was freaking out. He was scared and he wanted to leave. He said he was being followed by a crying Jewish family he believed to be Holocaust victims. Gloria believed Bolin was fighting an emotional life and death battle at this point. He was trying to cope with Germany, his family background, and his career falling apart. Bolin was living a nightmare and on a fast downward spiral. It was becoming too much for him. All of Bolin's relationships were breaking down by then. Apart from Gloria, he didn't have anyone to rely on because Visconti was about to go and work with Bowie, and his mates had decided to leave the band. They'd had enough. 
In spring 1974, Bolan quit Britain to binge on cocaine and booze and try his hand as a sole music producer in the States with new love Gloria Jones. Gloria Jones first met Bolan in 1969 at a party in LA. Jones was playing the piano when he walked in. Bolan, she remembers, was wearing a cape like a pair of wings. Somebody said he was going to be the next Beatles. She'd never heard of him. Jones, the daughter of a Pentecostal preacher, had enjoyed some success as a soul singer, having recorded the original Tainted Love in 1965, a track that was later to become a massive hit for Soft Cell in 1981. She was also a record producer for Motown Records and was appearing on stage in the musical Hair. Their paths continued to cross, and in 1973, Bolin invited Jones to be a backing singer with his band. Mark always knew the future. I would call him psychic, says Jones. Immediately after her audition, Bolin returned to London and wrote her into his will as a secretary. For a year, their relationship was purely platonic. After five years together, their relationship was finally consummated in Florida. Bolin was still married to June. According to Visconti, Bolin couldn't function without a woman in his life, and if it wasn't his mother, it was June. By 1973, June too was having an affair, and the relationship finally ended. Joan's arrival changed Bolin's life. She and Bolin, she says, were of the same souls. He was a Libra, she was a Libra. We understood each other. The Mark Bolin she knew was very serious about life, very sensitive. But then there's the other side, the rock and roll side, the drinking and drug taking. In 1975, Jones became pregnant. The change in Bolin was dramatic. Not long before the birth of Roland, Mark checked into a health farm. He was told he had the heartbeat of a 70-year-old. He was 25. Now he started to curb his indulgences and to lose weight. Their son, Roland, was born in September 1975, four days before Mark's own birthday. Mark was so happy and so proud. That baby was a cause of so much joy for him. As Gloria says, it was, this is my woman, I'm marrying her. This is our child, we're going to grow. With the birth of his son, Bolin's life seemed to take on a new meaning and purpose. In 1976, he released I Love to Boogie, and the following year, the album Dandy in the Underworld. Critics hailed it as a return to winning ways. I Love to Boogie had become a top 20 hit. In August 1977, Bolin was given his own TV show, simply titled Mark. He was a fitter, happier Bolin, and was planning series two. He also hit the road again, touring Britain with new wave band The Damned in support. It was to be his last outing. Mark was firing on all cylinders, frontman Captain Sensible of The Damned recalls. He'd got rid of his drug habit, he'd gone through his arrogant stage. He was almost humble. He was getting fit, the cheekbones were coming back. He was excited, he had a great band, and the songs were getting better. The last episode Bolin recorded for Mark had old friend David Bowie guesting. On a narrow stage, the duo sang together at the conclusion of the show. As they finished, Bolin stepped back and accidentally tumbled off the stage, leaving Bowie standing alone. In a way, it was kind of symbolic. There was always this idea in Mark's mind of die young and make a good corpse, says Keith Oldham. That horrible expression? He once said, I honestly feel it could all end tomorrow. Not just the band thing. I mean life. And these weren't just flippant remarks. They did seem to come from some weird inner conviction. Mark Boland's short-lived revival ended abruptly in the early hours of Friday, September the 16th, 1977. 
evening began at London's popular speakeasy nightclub for musicians in the West End. Mark frequented it often over the years and was a much-loved figure on the scene. Bolin ordered champagne to celebrate Gloria's return from America with their son, where she had been recording an album. Bolin suggested they go on to Morton's, a nightclub in Berkeley Square, to carry on the party. Gloria sat down at the piano and started to sing. Bolin ordered more champagne. He was so happy, Gloria recalled years later. I declared my love for him, and he declared his love for me. It was after 4am when they left. Usually, Bolin would be ferried around in his vintage white Rolls Royce, but heavy psychedelic rock band Hawkwind were borrowing it for the night. Although Gloria didn't want to drive, she also didn't want to leave Bolin's purple Mini in town and get a ticket. Bolin and Jones climbed into the Mini 1275 GT and, in high spirits, set off for home. A little before five o'clock, the car left the road at Queen's Ride, Barnes Common, and crashed through a metal fence post and then into a tree. They were barely a mile from Bolin's mansion in East Sheen. Bolin was killed instantly, his seat swivelling through 180 degrees and ending up in the rear of the vehicle. Gloria Jones was severely injured. Neither Bolin or Jones were wearing a seatbelt. The car was written off, chunks of engine forced through into the passenger compartment. Jones suffered facial injuries, a broken collarbone, broken jaw, and foot. It had been alleged that Jones was drunk at the wheel, but she's adamant she only had the one drink. Friends can vouch for her too. One was quoted as saying, Gloria had a lot of self-control. She had a very clear-minded American outlook in that respect. She was the type to have one drink, then call it quits and not have any more, because she wanted to stay in control of her faculties. The spotlight fell on the Mini, which had recently been serviced. Its wheels had been balanced and a tyre had been replaced. However, it has come to light that when the Mini was examined, after the accident, the pressure on the offside front tyre was only £16, £12 less than it should have been. Also, one of the rear tyres was marginally down, and two nuts on one of the front wheels were not even finger-tight. In his book, Bolin, The Rise and Fall of a 20th Century Superstar, Mark Petrus suggests the vehicle may have been one of several used by Pink Floyd's management company, and it had been souped up in accordance with the band's thirst for high-speed motor racing. Bolin's publicist, B.P. Fallon, visited the crash site in Barnes personally. I got a phone call in the morning from my friend Fatshna O'Kelly, who was the manager of the Boomtown Rats. He said, Have you heard the radio today? Mark's dead. It was unreal. Elves had died not long before, and I was round Mark's house when the news broke. Mark said, Do you know what? I'm really glad I didn't die today, because I wouldn't have made the main story. When Mark died, I think it was the same day as Maria Callas. He got the main story, thank goodness. But when you think about some of Mark's phraseology, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Eater of Cars, Hubcap Diamond Star Halo, 77 is going to be heaven, the latter being a line from Bolin's final single, Celebrate Summer. It's all writ, it's all known. Estranged wife, June Bolin, went to pay her respects to Mark's dead body. She told me his face looked so beautiful and he had only one little mark over his eyebrow, says Tony Visconti. That was the only indication he'd been in an accident. She couldn't understand how that had killed him. Just one tiny little mark. What I learnt in life, says Gloria Jones, is that one is chosen to be there for the good and the bad. Nobody around us was saying, don't drive, let's put you in a taxi. When you're a star, you have your valets and your bodyguards. But that night it was just Mark and me. My point is, if we had been in that bad estate, somebody would have said, you guys can't do this. At the point on Bars Common where the crash occurred, the road curved. There was a small hump, the tarmac then giving way to gravel. And when we made that turn, says Gloria, we weren't on the road, we were on the gravel. We'd been driving for 45 minutes and the wheel came off on that hump. If we had been in a larger car, Mark would have survived. Harry Feld, Bolin's older brother, was on early morning duty driving his bus in Portsmouth when he heard of the demise of Mark. Harry immediately drove to London to collect Phyllis, then stopped at Bolin's house before going into the hospital to identify his brother's body. 
Harry returned to Bolin's house an hour and a half later, only to find that the house had been stripped. All Mark's guitars, his clothes, everything. The big bedroom upstairs was his music room. He had cupboards full of tapes. The whole bloody lot went. It appears whoever ransacked the house had a key. There was no sign of forced entry. Mark Boland's funeral took place on Tuesday, September 20th, 1977, at Golders Green Crematorium. Gloria Jones was still recovering in hospital and was unconscious. She wasn't told Mark had died until the day of the actual funeral. On that day, rock royalty was in attendance, including David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Steve Harley, and band members of The Damned. Elton John sent a bouquet, and the centerpiece was a huge white swan made from chrysanthemums. Mark Boland's funeral was a traditional Jewish ceremony with a dramatic flair. There was a rabbi reading a eulogy, and Mark's coffin was placed in the middle of two twin railroad tracks to take him on his final journey home. His producer, Visconti, remembers, The eulogy was beautiful, and when the funeral organ music started, a big robotic arm appeared out of a crack just in front of the coffin to move Boland's body along the rails. As he moved towards us, a pair of doors opened and flames burst out in front of us. At that moment, Mark's mother screamed, My boy! I started crying, and everyone lost it. Boland's final last bow before he climbed the stairway to heaven. Although many of his songs refer to cars, Mark Boland himself was scared to death of driving. Despite owning his famous white Rolls-Royce, among many other ostentatious vehicles, he never learned how to drive. The one and only time Mark did get behind the wheel of a car was when first wife June tried to teach him. Mark was very enthusiastic, but didn't enjoy the experience. In fact, he was deeply shocked when he thought he'd lost control of the car. And yes, that too was Omini. When he climbed out, Mark had made his mind up. He was never going to drive a car again. Interestingly, in September 1973, on Battersea Bridge and following their breakup, June Feld lost control of her Ferrari, crashing sideways into three oncoming cars before piling head-on to another, causing over two hours of major traffic jams on both sides of the Thames. June was breathalyzed by police before being taken to Chelsea Police Station, where she was kept for 90 minutes. An eyewitness said, I saw this woman driving this Ferrari across the bridge. Then there was a tremendous bang. It seemed as if there were smashed cars everywhere. The woman seemed dazed and muttering. Eddie Cochran, Boland's great hero, also died because of a car crash in England in 1960. The date? April 16th. The number 16 would play a significant role in Mark Boland's life, who would later die on the 16th himself. Paul Rowland, Boland's biographer, has been quoted as saying, he didn't foresee his own death, but he had an inkling, a nagging fear he wouldn't live to see old age. Just maybe a feeling some people have that they're destined to take a certain path and it's going to terminate early. That is one theme that is running throughout his life. Bolin himself had said, there is so little time for us all. I need to be able to say what I want quickly and to as many people as possible. Time passes so slowly if you're not aware of it and so quickly if you are aware of it. The thing about success, certainly in the rock and roll business, is that it gives an incredible amount, but what it takes away is irreplaceable, and sometimes I get a funny feeling inside me that I shan't be here very long. And I'm not talking in terms of things like success. It frightens me sometimes. It's clear Mark had a strong sense of his time on Earth, and strove to make the most of it. He wanted that four years of idolatry, and worked tirelessly to achieve it. He wanted to leave his mark, and he did. Here's why. Mark. 
Mark Bolin was born on September 30, 1947, under the zodiac sign of Charming Libra, and had his moon and fiery Aries. Ruled by Venus, Bolin was a true romantic at heart, and he was best known for his amazing sense of style, charismatic personality, and movie star looks. He used his Venus energy to fuel fans' desires and strut his stuff musically. Bolin also had his flashy side channeled by his Aries moon. He was fearless on stage with his moon squared by Mars and Cancer. He loved to perform, and his life was an emotional drama on and off stage. Like a true Libra, life would imitate art, and he used his other Libra planets in Mercury, Venus, and Neptune, and his intuitive nature to create a fantasy rock star life. In that sense, it seems that Bullen almost psychically knew his time on Earth would be short but memorable. On tour in 1967, the Telegraph wrote Bolin was rumored to have role-played a conversation in the future, in which he would become world-famous with his manager Simon by his side. Of course, I'd have to die in a car crash like James Dean or Eddie Cochran, he said. Then my records would sell much more. In a Rolls-Royce, Simon asked. No, Bolin replied, in a mini. Ten years later, after Champagne with Friends, Mark Bolin, the passenger in a Mini, was killed in a tragic car accident in 1977. Another story. During his last tour of France, Bolin visited the Louvre where he spent several hours staring at the painting by Magritte called September 16th. The moon in the painting depicts the same phase as the moon was on the night he died, on September 16th. Friends of Bolin even claimed that he had a premonition he would die before the age of 30. Even stranger, Aries rules metal objects such as cars. But Bolin was terrified of driving, and he feared one day he might actually die in a crash. All these strange coincidences collided when Bolin died the morning of September 16, 1977, two weeks before his 30th birthday. The coroner said that Mark died instantly when the Mini he was traveling in, driven by his girlfriend Gloria Jones, crashed and first hit a middle fence and then a tree. The birth time of the two lovers is unknown. However, the karmic ties between the two and their sinistry chart is undeniable. The planet Venus in Libra plays a starring role in their birth charts, combined with Uranus and unpredictable Gemini. Yes, it was a passionate and tragic love story where fate would play a significant role in the relationship. It appears Mark and Gloria had an undying love for each other that added a mystical quality to their connection, but would forever bring emotional suffering and struggle for the mother and son. Another factor I look at when reviewing the chart of someone's death is the placement of the ascendant and the astrological moon sign. I often see the natal ascendant and the moon on the exact day of death are eerily connected to each other, and this is exactly the case with Mark Bolin's chart. On the day of the crash, September 16th, moon and Libra was loosely conjunct Pluto and Libra. This powerful aspect was driven by a karmic emotional bond that collided with Uranus and Scorpio that morning, the planet of sudden surprises. This aspect indicates an untimely death which came as a shock. In this case, a freak car accident that killed Mark Bolin instantly and changed the life of both Gloria and their son Roland forever. The scales of justice were prominent that day when Mark and Gloria's car crashed and their lives tragically swung between life and death. Yes, the three Libras, whose story would tell a tale of love and sacrifice, who would live and who would die. I believe what we hold on to and what we choose to let go of creates a never-ending cycle of life and death. The Libra connection between Mark Bolin, Gloria Jones, and their son is undoubtedly powerful in their astrological chart. In the afterlife, sometimes a child is assigned to a family because one or both parents have good karma 
or even unfinished business with the soul of that child. On the morning of September 16th, Boland spiritually came full circle with the mother of his child, and I believe he chose to sacrifice his life so his beloved Gloria could live and raise their son. In this case, Mark Boland's son was tasked to carry on the legacy of his father, and if you're a fan of T-Rex, you will know it has been extremely complicated for him. What's in a number? How does it affect a person's life, or in this case, how did it play a role in his shocking death? Mark Boland's life path number was number six, which is not a surprise if you understand numerology. In numerology, six is actually considered one of the most harmonious and stable numbers. However, perhaps for that same reason, when something unexpected happens and the six falls into discord and disharmony, it becomes possibly the most destructive and dangerous of all numbers. One of the issues connected with this number is that people with life path number six are defined by the relationships in their life and are often prone to worry and are perceived as anxious. This was certainly the case for Mark Bowen because he was terrified of dying young in a car accident. Unfortunately, was it his paranoia that contributed to his untimely death or a premonition or soul contract that he had with his girlfriend? Gloria Jones, who was driving at the time of the crash and had the life path number three. The person who holds the life path number three is a powerful psychic, and it's a creative number that represents the bringer of change. No doubt, both Mark and Gloria's life was changed forever that day. And yes, destiny can be a harsh mistress in this case. Poland's death number was a master number 22, which is an interesting number for him to have. Why? Well, this number, while not associated with death alone, is known for being the number of people who fail to reach their full potential, but can achieve cult status which is usually accomplished after death. This was not the case for Boland's music because he had already achieved rock star fame, but for his death number it certainly cut his life short and established him as the biggest glam rock icon in the world next to David Bowie. Who knows, after all, what music Boland would have gone on to create if he hadn't died that day. Tragically, the story of the band was not a happy one for many of the members of T-Rex. After Mark died in 1977, his other bandmates also followed just a few years later in a death by misadventure. What is even more tragic is that I can see how their numbers are intertwined and kept on repeating across all their numerology charts. The first of these was Steve Took, who was born on July 28, 1949, and had the life path number Master 22. Steve was the drummer in T-Rex for some time, but Boland disproved of his drug use and they broke up after working together on a few albums. These two were a case of karmic connection. This opposition is evident in the numerology, as I can see that Mark had the death number Master 22, while Steve had the life master number 22. The meaning of this number also repeats for both rock stars, and links to the fact that neither of them reached their true potential. Mark died in a tragic accident, but Steve also died before his time when he suffered from a drug overdose at the age of just 31. The third band member to die from T-Rex was the bassist Steve Curry. He died on April 28, 1981 in a car accident in Portugal, just like Mark Bolin. Around midnight on April 28, 1981, Curry's car veered off the road near his home in Portugal. He was just 33. When I look at the numerology, the patterns repeat yet again as we can see that Steve Curry had the death number 6, which is another mirror of Mark's life path number, which was also 6. This is a number that I often associate with death or with supernatural forces at work, and in this case it appears that Steve was also the victim of a terrible accident that took his life that night before he reached his full potential. In numerology, Mark Boland's death and his karmic ties to his Libra family and bandmates who share both the master number 22 and life path number six is no coincidence. I believe it contributed to his sad and untimely death. Reflecting on the hours after Boland's death, Tony Visconti said, After the first album, Mark had his own tape recorder, so from then on he had everything I had. Unfortunately, when he died, his house was ransacked. This was really odd. He died in the night in a car crash, and by 8am, before it was announced in the press, his guitars were gone, 
His tapes were gone. His clothes were gone. Out of the house. I wish somebody would investigate this. So, all his rough mixes and demos have been released on labels that have done other Mark Bolin releases. So everything is out there. I don't think there's anything left to discover. Before his death, Bolin had a suspicion his financial affairs were in disarray. It turned out he owed the taxman three million pounds. Royalties from his earlier recordings continued to be made to two charities, the Performing Rights Society Members Fund and the Ravenswood Foundation, which cares for people with learning disabilities. However, it's a different story concerning the earnings from his post-1971 recordings. These were locked up in a tax avoidance offshore trust. Some estimate the value to be 20 million pounds. The mystery is who benefited from it. Roland Bolin and Tony Visconti have both been engaged in protracted legal battles to acquire what they believe to be their share. But it appears one of the main beneficiaries was Bolin's wife, June. Mark and June were going through a bitter separation at the time the trust was set up. In an effort to eliminate June from his life, Bolin refused to include her name among the trustees. Trouble is, the couple never divorced and so it appears June was able to make a substantial claim on the trust after his death. It was June's payback in a way, Visconti is quoted as saying. She was penniless when she and Mark split, and she cut off Roland and Gloria as a result. Over the years, Bolin artefacts began to appear at auctions and fairs, private tapes of rehearsals and performances changing hands for up to £1,000 each. It was 1987 when the most macabre memento appeared. A Bournemouth newspaper contacted Bolin's brother, Harry Feld, with news that a retired funeral director was auctioning the blood-stained clothes Bolin was wearing when he died. Harry invited Larry Mitchell, the funeral director, to his home. Mitchell claimed he had only come across the clothing in a bag in a storeroom after he retired. He told Harry he wanted to auction them on behalf of a hospital charity. But when Mark was cremated, Harry had instructed the funeral parlour to destroy the clothes. Harry decided now to do what should have been done back then. He set fire to them in his back garden, so no bugger got him. June Bolin died of a heart attack in Turkey in 1997. Tony Visconti finally settled his case against the trust out of court, 24 years and seven legal teams later. A settlement over copyright ownership for Roland Bolin was also rubber stamped in 2014. Since his father's death, Roland has lived in LA, where in recent years he has been establishing himself as a songwriter and performer. Gloria Jones sustained facial injuries, a broken collarbone, and a smashed leg and foot in the accident that killed Bolin. The injuries healed, but it took her 14 years to come out of the shock of his death. She returned to America, married, and moved to South Africa in 1995 with her husband, Chris Mitchell, to work with local musicians and run a charity for HIV children in a Johannesburg township. As we know now, Mark was a huge fan of Eddie Cochran, but what many people don't know is the young Mark Bolin, aka Mark Feld, was just 13 years old when he actually met Cochran outside the Hackney Empire, a theatre in the London borough of Hackney, where Cochran had just played a concert. Cochran allowed Mark to carry his guitar out to his limousine. Eddie Cochran's reign as a rock and roll star lasted four years. Maybe that's why Bolin famously remarked, the prospect of being immortal doesn't excite me, but the prospect of being a materialistic idol for four years does appeal. In the event, Bolin got just two years. Between 1970 and 1972, his group T-Rex had four number one singles, three at number two, and for a brief, delicious moment, Mark Bolin was, if not the world's, and certainly Britain's biggest pop star. Eddie Cochran, as we know, died as a result of a car crash on the 16th day of the month, as did Mark. We leave you now with this last mystery, the most startling aspect to Bowden's life and death as a rock and roll star can perhaps be found with this tantalising twist. One of Bowden's last recorded songs is Celebrate Summer. It appeared on Dandy in the Underworld, his last album. A line in that song, Summer is Heaven, in 77, 
put that together with this, and everything is neatly rounded off. The titles of Mark Boland's first two recordings were Mrs. Jones and The Road I'm On, Gloria. Gloria Jones, Mark's girlfriend and mother of his son, was the driver of the Mini that crashed and killed him. Indeed, the lyrics to Gloria, recorded in 1963, can be seen quite eerily to foreshadow Mark's death, the road I'm on. Since we last loved Gloria, the sun's been up and down that many times. Since we last loved Gloria, I've been sharing love with women of kinds. Summer ends and leaves start dying, you won't see Robin crying. He knows where the sun is hiding, to another nest he's flying. You gave me reason, now I've got to roam, because the road I'm on gal won't run me home. Hear my words, Gloria, echoing from mountains with a cry. Hear my words, Gloria, you'll see them, gal, reflecting of the sky. Hear it in the cold wind blowing. Hear it in the rivers flowing. No one in the mind that's growing. See, because the cards that's showing. You gave me reason, now I've got to roam. Because the road I'm on, gal, won't run me home. Because the road I'm on, gal, won't run me home. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.